Welcome to the Dhamma Podcast. The audio recording that follows comes from the 1999 Insights from an Ancient Tradition conference held in Massachusetts. The speakers are Dr. Gerhard Schultz and Dr. Urban Studer, discussing their experiences of incorporating Anapana and Vipassana meditation in drug rehabilitation programs in Zurich. This podcast will be updated monthly with additional archives from Essien Goenka's talks and question and answer sessions, as well as other speakers discussing aspects of Vipassana meditation. This podcast is sponsored by Pariyati, a nonprofit publisher that offers written audio and video content and whose mission is to enrich the world by disseminating the words of the Buddha, providing sustenance for the seeker's journey, and illuminating the meditator's path. For more information regarding Pariyati, please go to www.pariyati.org. That is www.pariyati.org. For more information on Vipassana meditation, including a schedule of courses offered throughout the world, please see www.dhamma.org. That is www.dhamma.org. Now, as a scientist, usually, um, if you have allocated 45 minutes, you speak 40 minutes about methodology, and then in five minutes you give some results, because they could not be understood uh, without the first part. Now... I'm trying hard not to do that. (laughs) Nevertheless, I think I have to make a few uh, words about how I went about evaluating Start Again. And uh, as Gerhard said, the report, this is a third of it. And uh, there are so many results, there are so many details. And the big challenge, of course, is to sort of get out the main points, the main points um, usually it's not something that is defined generically, but it depends on the audience. So I'll try to work hard on getting the main points for this audience, which I think is uh, giving some neurobiological background and some neurobiological or neuroscientific uh, perspective on the concept of addictedness that Start Again has uh, put somehow into its center. And I want to do that because it gives a complementary point of view to uh, that which has been transported in the Vipassana tradition. And I think it's uh, a very nice example of relating the two uh, really, I think, very profound developments that we have in front of us, one from an experiential point of view in the Vipassana tradition and the other from a classical Western point of view of doing science. And they are sort of converging onto similar uh, sort of insights. That's one thing. Then I think uh, I want to take up a thought that uh, Paul Fleischman was uh, putting up yesterday so clearly and so nicely. Uh, we passionate therapeutic, but it's not psychotherapy or it's not therapy. And for that reason, I want to outline um, at least some of the main principles of the therapeutic the professional therapeutic approach of Start Again, which is this systemic uh, approach, and then show how to possibly integrate, to combine them in an institutional setting. And the last part is I want to give some uh, results or some classes that I have reconstructed, I mean, found again and again and again in interviews, in many, many interviews I've done with clients at Start Again. So let me start with some methodological remarks. Usually if there's someone who calls himself a scientist, 
scientists, be it in natural science or be it in the social sciences, one thinks of someone who is counting and who is figuring out frequencies and who makes a lot of statistics. And then he can say what are the facts, so many percent of this, so many percent of that. I consider statistics to be a mere mean of diagnostics to find interesting questions. Statistics is not an aim to me. It's just a mean, it's just a tool to find interesting questions. And the interesting questions, um, I think, are questions about the architectonical principles of an institution, of the way people lead their lives, families lead their lives. And a term that we use very often in this context is structural properties, the structural characteristics of a particular way an individual or a family is organizing its life. So if I use the word structural, I try to imply that there are, like for an architect, there are principles which are sort of producing the particular way a building looks like. Now, if you do that scientifically, you do that in a, method a methodically controlled way. That means you're very explicit about the data which you get, and then you're very explicit about the way you analyze it, so that in principle, anyone else being trained in that tradition can falsify your statements. Perhaps just to give you a, a very, very superficial, but perhaps a slight understanding what I mean, when I talk about structural properties of um, a text being produced, an interview being given by a client, I like to use the phrase, which I don't really know whether it translates into English um, uh, that well, but we very often have clients that tell, I want to get a hold on my addiction. That's my motivation for being in therapy. I want to get a hold on my addiction. Now you imagine, I mean, therapy usually means to change. Now you imagine to change something that you hold in your hand, you know? And I think it's a beautiful example of the, the challenge you face with addicts. They want to change, but the only condition for entering a therapeutic institution is that you don't do anything on them because they want to stay as they are. You know, and that's beautifully expressed in this, I want to get a hold on my addiction. They don't say, I want to get rid of my addiction. Or another example is this, um, I have decided to go and take drugs again after they have been, for example, in therapy for half a year or one year. I have decided I want to go back and take the drugs again. Now that's this typical pseudo-autonomy that we face again day to day um, when we work with addicts. That's that they do as if they were in charge of their life. I have decided to go and consume heroin, cocaine, or whatever. The fact is that they could not stay, they could not resist the craving for it. So if you try to understand the constructing principles, you usually do not listen to what people say, but you listen carefully how they say it, how they combine it, and how they translate it into action. So the first thing I want to do is <clears throat> I uh, give a, a, a small overview of our neurobiological um, insights into addiction 
and then to sort of link them to structural aspects of the way addicts organize their life and in this way to get a sort of a background to understand how um, <clears throat> Start Again tries then to work with this. Now, since we are here in a Vipassana center, everything is low-tech, at least with respect to the slides and uh, the transparencies. But I think that gives us a good challenge to exercise our equanimity. <laughs> so let's work with that. Uh, I think it's an absolutely fascinating thing that has uh, been worked on in the last couple of years um, very intensely. That is, what's actually the influence of uh, drugs, the, whole, the large classes of drugs on the brain. Now, I do not want to reduce addiction, addictedness, to the level of biology. My basic contention is that the way cognitive processes are organized in the brain. They have an organization. They are not just erratic things. They have a very precise architecture. There's a step-by-step -step sequencing of, of different phenomena. That the way they are organized on the level of the brain is certainly not too far away from the way we perhaps experience it or we perhaps can have an access um, to these phenomena if we go into very deep meditation, if we do, for example, Vipassana meditation. So the, I think the, the converging thing is on the level of how processes are organized. I do not want to go into the big discussion whether the mind is some emerging um, phenomenon of some highly complex system or whether the mind is prior to matter or all these things. Let's stay first on the level of organization. So there are three main parts in the brain. The first is the neocortical part, which we are so proud of because all the thinking, all the co um, conscious uh, things are more or less happening in that part with, with thought or we think. Now, the, underneath this gray uh, thing, there is a shell or disc-like structure. That's the striatum and the pallidum. There are many subunits. And underneath this shell or disc-like thing, there are central basal um, centers the thalamus uh, being one of its of the, the relevant relevant structures here, and amygdala, and hippocampal areas, and all these things around. So, what is the interesting thing is that nowadays we know that there are closed loops connecting frontal neocortical parts with this straddle and palatal parts with the thalamus and back to the frontal. So they're really close loops, like, like with the children when they play with the trains. Eh? So they're closed loops. And so this is only symbolic, but it um, symbolizes these neurological connections between these different parts. Now, a very interesting issue and that there is a lot of research on today is how does decision-making work? Now, today we know that before there is an action, there is activity in the frontal part, and it slowly runs up to the somatic cortex, and then finally over the um, cerebellum, going down the spine, and so on, and then finally there is the action. But before all this, 
there happens something very interesting. There's circling activity in this loop that I have drawn out here. So there's, and in this shell or um, disk-like structure, there's like a matrix organization. And th there are certain patterns activated, then the activity runs around, the other patterns activated, activity runs around, other patterns activated. Now the contention today is that the, the brain is going through a whole list of possible actions. And by reactivating body sensations, memories, and things like that, many, many possibilities are kind of thrown away. And the one that's left over is the, the one we really do. So before we do something, the brain has been, from a neurobiological point of view, has been active, 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 playing through many options, throwing them out. One has been left over. That's the thing we do. Now, things are not so easy. There is like, you know, whenever you have a lot of people, you need a director. Or if you have lots of instruments, you need a conductor. So there is quite a complicated activity going on, so we need a conductor. Now, there are several conductors in the brain, which are typically called, um, the systems are named according to the neurotransmitter that's used in this system. Now, one very important conductor for this activity is the dopaminergic system. And the dopaminergic system has something very um, interesting as a cognitive function that it supports, that it's the sort of the substrate for. That is, the dopaminergic system is always activated if something is happening which is better than expected. Or something is happening which the organism thinks, oh, that's very important. And that this system is the conductor of the system which is involved in decision-making, I think is a very interesting thing. Because whenever something is happening which is very important, very relevant, essential actually to the organism, we are in a situation when we have to learn with high efficiency in order to catch it, in order to, how, in order to know how to re-initiate um, it, in order how to get at it again. Now I come to the drugs. One thing we know uh, today is that all the main classes of drugs, opiates, uh, psychostimulants, and so on, they are all activating the dopaminergic system directly. Whether you want or not, they just activate it. So translate it into a structural point of view. So um, trying to understand what that means from an architectonical point of view, this is Drugs make themselves in the brains of addicts as something which is absolutely essential for surviving. Right? And so all the situations that are associated with getting at drugs, they are like blown up, they are like made into extremely important things, and other options, they just decrease, decrease, decrease in priorities. So what we have is that whether they like it or not, the addicts. Whenever they take drugs, taking drugs is getting into a more and more and more and more important thing. So if I summarize this, and that's sort of the step to connect them to the um, to a possible understanding in the Vipassana context. So the modern 
This is just for impressive sort of <laughs> entertainment in the back. <laughs> and to show that I have prepared at least something for this talk. <laughs> so, you see, the, usually one says, oh, people, they go into drugs because they like the drugs. And then some very sophisticated people say, no, no, they don't go into drugs because they like the drugs. Because it's because they don't like the suffering if they don't get the drugs. So we have these two classes of hedonistic and unhedonistic theories. But nowadays, we think that's only sort of the, the first stage. They take drugs and they like drugs. Okay, so that gets the thing going. But meanwhile, the drugs act on the dopaminergic system and they make it into mo something more important. So there's a lot of association of drug-related behaviors to the actual act of taking drugs, to the actual experience of having consumed the drugs. drugs. So it, there's a progression from liking drugs finally to wanting drugs, finally to craving for drugs. And the qualitative change is from I take drugs and it gives us... Uh, a pleasant sensation in the sense of, in the beginning, there is some ecstatic experience, and afterwards it's mainly the absence of negative, the absence of unpleasant experiences. Huh? There's a step from this to this unresisting, this permanent sort of feeling, I need them. I can't be without them. And that's because they have been charged up, charged up with significance. They have been charged up with salience. Drug slightest sort of indication from the surrounding or the coming up of an idea. So pointing towards drug just reactivates this whole thing. That's an important thing. I have to have it in order to survive. So that, um, which I have explained now on the level of drugs, I think one can do as well with many, many other things. Sex, money, reputation, I think it's no wonder that f with the addicts, sort of, we get to see a phenomena extremely clear, extremely sharp, um, which I think if we go into addictions to sex, to money, to passion, and so we would also see. But the magnifying glass is not as large as with addicts. And that's because of the substances acting on the dopaminergic system immediately directly. They go into the blood, they cross the, the blood-brain barrier, and they just act on the dopaminergic um, centers. So once you have understood this with addicts, I think you can generalize. You can substitute for drugs other objects. And I think the important thing is that there is a shift from liking the object to just not being able to live with it anymore. And that which is, I think, beyond the neuroscientific point of view, which now leads into the next arena, that is, that's what we call, I'm from a reconstructive point of view, Gerhard from a clinician's point of view, it's really the going into craving, not for an object, it's the craving for the sake of craving. And there I think it's absolutely fascinating to combine this which I've done here with another field of neuroscience, modern neuroscience. That is, today I think a modern neuroscientist would not say we are thinking with the head, with the brain. He would say we are thinking with the brain and the body. We are no 
we know today that there is practically no cognitive action in the brain where there is not a permanent feedback from states of the body into that. And it actually goes along that integrating and decision-making loop activity I was talking about before. So if we combine the knowledge about addiction with this other thing about integrating mental activity and evaluating body states, I think we are getting to a point where we have an extreme similarity between neuroscientific points of view and Vipassana point of view about addiction because one of the ways I could paraphrase Vipassana understanding of addiction is that you first have an object like the drug, like sex, like money, like whatever, and it gives you pleasant sensation. So you like it. Sooner or later, there's a qualitative step that you realize that already thinking about it, there are pleasant sensations induced. You don't have to take it. Just thinking about it is enough to induce pleasant sensations, and you want to go for it. And there's an extremely important qualitative shift from liking an object, liking a thing, to liking to, to like it, to crave for a thing, to crave for the craving. And I think that's the transition from addiction to addictedness. Addictedness is this universal phenomena of, of craving for the sake of craving, where the object can be completely secondary. Now, analyzing the work at Start Again with clients, it's absolutely fascinating to see this process again and again and again in a clinical context. Patients that come to start again, they want to get out of their addiction or get a hold on their addiction. Right? So they don't consume drugs because start again is a, a, therapy, a therapeutic institution where people do not consume drugs, so they are supposed to be clean. So they don't consume drugs for half a year. Then they feel, well, now I'm really out of my addiction. But they can't wait to get to the center they can't wait to be really in the middle of Zurich, where they have all the possibilities of dancing from 10 to 4 o'clock in the morning, where they can go and uh, lie at the beach, where there are all the people, the music, and they are in the middle of the life. And they can't wait to get, uh, you know, we have a lot of men in our institution, so they can't wait to meet women, of course. And uh, So what is happening is a lot of addictedness is surfacing just craving for the sake of craving. And it just re, uh, it's just re-engaged, it's just re-enacted sort of in different contexts. But the phenomenon is addictedness. And it's then the job of the, of the therapist sort of to have a very sharp eye on what is the thing that the people do and how do they do it in order to sort of put up certain boundary conditions, to put up certain framings of uh, the way they have to stay um, in start again, so that one can work with addictedness, with this genuine behavior of craving for the sake of craving. So that leads me to the next step. How do you put up these framing conditions? Because there, I think now you have to do the part of integration. 
Then you have to combine the universal thing I have now been talking about, addictedness, this reaction pattern of doing something for the sake of, um, of, of craving. Perhaps one, one slight remark about that, you know, uh, Paul uh, was, yes, was talking yesterday about cause and effect, cause and effect. I think one way you can understand addiction is that people make something like a short circuit between cause and effect. The effect turns into the cause for doing it, which produces the effect, which is immediately translated into the cause, which is immediately taken as the reason for doing it again. And in this, you get sort of an explosion which leads to a complete de-autonomization of the individual. So having this general understanding, which I have tried to outline from a newer scientific point of view, and I have tried to make the link with a Vipassana understanding, as a professional, you face the challenge of having an individual, to have a group, and now what to do. So there I think you need a completely complementary um, toolbox. Now let's start again. This is a systemic understanding of individuals. And systemic means that you always understand an individual as being an individual in a multitude of social contexts. And that you always understand an individual as being an individual who has a history, a social history. In a technical term, this is a socialization history. And you never stop with the individual, but you go back one step further and say this socialization has happened in a certain milieu, be it a familial milieu, a family, family of origination, or be it some sort of institution substituting for that. And it's extremely interesting to sort of carefully go step by step in finding out what are the structural elements in the family history. So what are basic building blocks, basic uh, ways of constructing family life in the family of origination and also in the family of the mother and the father. Because that gives you sort of a, like an underlying current, like an underlying dynamics on top of which or in front of which you have to understand the concrete individual socialization process and the individual kind of uh, forming a biography. So in order to make that slightly more uh, you know, concrete, um, I have a slide here which is in German, so you are even challenged to learn some German now, huh? uh, which reminds me, which gives me the, um, the opportunity to talk about the very basic uh, difference that I think from a, a clinical point of view is absolutely important. Usually um, the institutions giving you the clients or sending you the clients, in our case these are social welfare um, departments or departments from the justice um, because we have all these 60 or 65 uh, percent of people that have been sentenced, they tell you you have to rehabilitate, you have to re-socialize the people we send you. So 
like they are okay, something is broken, you fix it and they work again. Now if you carefully analyze biographies, family histories and so, the thing you find is that the challenge is to have a very individual sort of weighing between a post-socialization job and a re-socialization job. What does that mean, post-socialization? That means you are having now in front of you a 30, 40-year-old man or woman, but many, many constructing principles of life this man or this woman has never experienced. Constructing principles that they usually get during socialization, right? So the job of a professional is to find out in each case what are the specific elements that they didn't get or where they have been traumatized or where they have um, um, experienced some sort of confused uh, transmission of action and reaction patterns over the generations. And one of the um, things that I have found out while evaluating START again is that a structural point of view is extremely helpful in that. And this slide here um, is a very, very uh, gross summary of some of the main steps. Basically, you can understand socialization as a process of detachment crisis. Now, whenever we hear the word crisis, we feel like, Ooh, I really have to do some anapana or something possible. <laughs> Uh, from a social scientific point of view, a crisis is just the interesting thing because that's the point, that's the locus of change. The opposite is a routine. So from a social scientific point of view, you would say life is nothing else than just a permanent flow of routine, crisis, routine, crisis, routine, crisis. And you can't sort of suspend it. You can't always live in the routine. And it's pretty hard to live always in the crisis. Also, Start Again did do that over several years because they had this very big craving for the big house in Zurich. Um, they had to live in the crisis for two, three years, which is a completely different subject, leading into learning organizations and things like that, which might be the topic of the next conference. <laughs> so to come back to individual biographies and family histories, it's a permanent dance of routine, crisis, routine, crisis. And so from a social scientific or from a structural point of view, it's very nice to understand socialization as a succession of crisis, of detachment crisis. And that means at specific points, new architectonic principles to build life have to be learned. So the first thing is you are in an absolutely fantastic symbiotic unit uh, with your mother, right, in the womb. The first crisis, so the first big crisis, and in this sense also the first locus where many traumatizations can start, and I have no time to go into all of them, but the first place is, of course, the physical birth, where they leave the physical symbiosis and go into a social symbiosis with the mother. That's a place where they learn unconditioned trust and the feeling of being nurtured, and so on. But that doesn't last uh, too long if there is a father or if there is a symbolized father. That means it can be an aunt, it can be a grandmother if the father as a person is not available. So 
I'm talking now about the father or a symbolized father, if there is a father who does his job. And the first job a father has to do is to be nasty, to be a disturbing factor. The first thing a father has to do for a child is to be the, the third one in the game and to open up the symbiosis between the mother and the child. So it's very difficult. It's really a very tricky thing to be a father because you disturb a unit of joy, of happiness, and um, the mother doesn't like it and the child doesn't like it. <laughs> so it's really helpful to be a, a meditator at that point. <laughs> and to do one's job, to disturb. But, you know, a father wouldn't be a father if he wouldn't do it in a gentle way and in a loving way and in an understanding way. So the, the first crisis is the detachment from the, the, when the, the child has been born, right? That's this period is the mother-child symbiosis, is the detachment from that. And that's where the father is absolutely uh, important agent. And the child now learns something that Gerhard has used this word before, dialectics. The child learns something very, very important. That is that in the life, there are, wherever you look, there are always contradictory poles which you somehow have to handle, where you somehow have to do a dynamical relating between the poles and the solution is certainly not to throw away one and stick with the other. Right? So if you look at the triangle, that, that's why there is a triangle down here. Father, mother, child. The moment a child is sort of kicked out, pushed out of the symbiotic unit with the mother, this game of inclusion and exclusion, being in a unit with the father, having the mother excluded, being in a unit with the mother, having the father excluded, having the parents working on their partnership, and myself being excluded. See, there's a permanent game of this absolutely contradictory thing, inclusion and exclusion. And it's complete. You're either 100% excluded or you're 100% included. And I think that's an absolutely crucial crucial point and from the analysis of many, many, many histories and biographies, um, we always come back to this, this phenomenon of inclusion and exclusion as sort of the, the first situation where one is learning to handle the contradictions of life, that that hasn't been, you know, experienced in a, in a full way because the underlying or the background of this dynamics is this sort of unconditioned trust, unconditioned love. So making the connection to the professionals, if they find this in a biography or they reconstruct it, they you know, read it out of the data, the biographical data, in a systematic manner, it's a big challenge how to set up framings in the apartments, in the group settings, where this sort of process of being included, excluded, being at the edge, being in the center, having some sort of trust and so on, where this can be trained, trained, re-enacted, re-enacted, so that they get a feeling for that. So the whole period where this dynamic is very relevant is the, 
in technical terms, Oedipal triad, uh, this phase between two years and four or five years. That's where really the triangle is very highly activated. And for all the mothers and fathers, I want to do for this, I mean, we probably run over time slightly, but if you don't mind, at least one small interplay for mothers and fathers of more than one child, you see. If you have one child, you have three relationships to be organized. The parents among themselves, which is a challenge, the mother and the child, the father and the child. Now, if you have a second child, it's very interesting. Complexity is doubled. Yeah? You suddenly have six relationships to be organized. And that's one of the reasons why people sometimes, at least in our place, I don't know how it is here, they say one child is no child. Easy thing. You just go along with it. But two child, ooh, that makes a difference. <laughs> and then you can, you know, you can make more dots and you see how complexity increases. <laughs> And that's the reason why mothers with more than two children or with more than one child are typically very good managers. And that's why they face a very concrete challenge in integrating Vipassana and their family life. So, <clears throat> let me just very briefly go through the last um, two stages because there is an other transition, a detachment crisis, because sooner or later one can not only live in the triangle, mother, father, child, mother, father, child, mother, father, child, there are forces driving the child out into the world. And that's typically this so-called latency phase. And there is a, again, from a structural point of view, from an architectonic point of view, there's a very important transition. In the family, Relationships are organized on the basis of whole persons. That means any subject, any theme can be talked about. If your wife, if your husband tells you, oh, I'm not going to talk with you about this, you have to ask, but what's wrong? I mean, you really have to justify that. Now, that's a completely different sort of relationship, social relationships, than a so-called role-formatted relationship where there's only a subset of themes, of sec, um, subjects that can be discussed. Like if you go to a shopping center or so, the, the cashier, you know, she will not talk to you, how was sex life last night? <laughs> no, you will be kind of irritated and feel like that's too much. <laughs> so, but if your wife asks you how was shopping today, you probably wouldn't feel so much irritated about it. So there's a, an interesting difference between relationship as a whole person where there's actually no exclusion of a subject or you really have to justify why you exclude it and the role formatted so, uh, social relationships where there is only a limited amount of a limited horizon of subjects where you really have to justify why you include certain things. Another thing is that in the personal, we call them personal relationships, or in a technical term, the diffuse relationship, the members are unique, and they can't be interchanged. You can't just come without big troubles and say, now we take this mother and we put there another mother, so this is your mother now. You know, this is a quite um, challenging thing and difficult thing to do. At the cashier's place, it's no problem. You take a cashier, put there another cashier, everything is fine. Now, one could go into much more details about that, 
The only thing I want to give you a feeling for is that there are qualitatively very different sort of relationships. Diffuse or personal relationship and role formatted relationships. Now what you find with addicts, I'm sorry, one step back. In this crisis, the latency period, when the child is growing out of the triangle mother-father-child into the world, that's the transition. It's a crisis, but it means something new has to be learned. One of the main things to be learned there is the transition from personal relationships to role-formatted relationships. Then there comes poverty and adolescence, and you know enough about that, probably. So with an addict, what you find is that very, very often this distinction between personal relationships and role-formatted relationships is very, very casual, very, very fragile, or, or they simply don't have a feeling for it. So as a professional, you know, you're on the side of living a role-formatted relationship with the client, on the one hand. On the other hand, you have to talk about very intimate things, so you need trust, so you have to be able to put up a personal relationship. I think that's, again, only one part, but it's a very important part of a professional's life, that he has the ability to balance, to dynamically organize, to simultaneously organize role-formatted relationship and personal relationship. And especially working with addicts who are not able to do that, it's an enormous challenge. And for that, I think you get a feeling that professional skills are really something different from having the skill to sit 10-day courses. And I think it's perhaps an example of what um, Paul Fleischmann said yesterday, you know, with passionate psychotherapeutic, but it's not psychotherapy because in the professional setting of psychotherapy or here in the systemic um, uh, professional therapeutic setting, you really have to have professionals that know how to do this. Organize role formatted um, relationship and organize personal relationship. Now, in order to not being trapped in too much closeness, too much personal, personal relationship, at start again, they use this analysis of biographies and family histories, because that's a mean to distance. Yeah. One takes the family data, one looks at it, one gets up with some ideas, just to have an to give you an impression how that looks like. That's what we study, or that's what they study. You, you can't see it totally, but you see one takes the grandfather and the grandmother, where are they born, when are they born, where have they been living, what have been their profession, what have been their religious backgrounds, where did they move, how many children did they have, who is married, who, is, uh, you know, who died, and one does that, one puts this up into a graphical codification called a genogram, and then you have seen one of the slides where the people sit around, relaxed, what they do is they work, and the work they do is typically they analyze these genograms to find some of the building principles. And it's absolutely fascinating to see how habits are transmitted from generation to generation and they are like intensified. They start up in one generation, there's a violation of gender and sex um, <coughs> boundaries, for example. 
they are like transmitted to the next generation, the violation has increased, you suddenly see it to pop up on the side of the mother, you see it to, to pop up on the side of the father. We sometimes tend to say no wonder that they found together, you know, and it's just a question of where has it increased in intensity to the, at the amount where it's simply not possible to organize a life anymore. And it's very interesting to see that to some extent you really can say now it's the middle position, it's the first, it's the oldest, it's the youngest, where sort of the traumatization, the violation of architectonic principles over the generation is just focusing. And for that reason, I think it's absolutely necessary in a drug rehabilitative context to work not only with the individuals, but also to work with the whole uh, family system and the family history. And given this very coarse overview over the socialization process, I think the two absolutely universal and very common phenomena are that the people are not able to organize triadic relationships. The opening up of the symbiosis has somehow failed. That's one thing. And the other thing is that this game, this play, the first meaning inclusion, exclusion, you know, this, this dynamic, they can't handle it. And the second thing is this role-formatted and personal relationship, which is kind of an uh, important thing when, people, when uh, the child go to the school, that they have a big lack there. If you have that, uh, if you combine it with the issues from the family history, you know how to set up a framing of the individual therapeutic process from a professional therapeutic point of view. And at start again, that means you find out what is the right sort of combination of forcing them or not forcing them, to leave it open to them or not, to participate in the different elements. The self-help groups, first they are compulsory, afterwards it's more up to them to organize it. The sport part, yoga, outside activities and so on. The individual counseling, which typically in the beginning means working on the biography, re um, reenacting parts of the biography, getting aware of elements of the biography. It means the group setting, where they really have this interplay between personal and role formatted. It's very interesting. You see the difference between a group of three people and a group of 20 people, because if there are 20 people, you are forced to be more with the role formatted behavior. If there is a group of three people, you have more the personal relationships. Okay? So there you see that an institutional setting is something completely different from a one-to-one -one counseling. And there are many other elements in the concrete uh, way that they do their uh, interventions that start again. The last, not the least, but the, the last one to be mentioned is the Anapana meditation and the Vipassana meditation. And that's kind of the last part of my talk I want to turn to now. From a systemic point of view, the red thread along which you would organize a therapeutic process would be the family history. And I think Start Again has really developed something new. That's why we have coined a new term. And that's this in-depth systemic approach. Yes, they organized their therapeutic interventions at the beginning along the life and the family history. But there comes a qualitative change at some point where addictedness gets into the center. And I like to make a picture for that. You see, usually 
people ask if I give a talk, well, don't they work at start again? Because usually it means therapy, half the day, 80, 60%, they go for work. And then they have some therapy. At start again, no work. Oh, so it's uh, like holiday? No, no, it's not holiday, it's hard work. Hard work, you don't work, how does that work? <laughs> then they ask, well, do you do this art and do you do, um, you know, big theater and music and so? No. Well, but that's a bad therapy, nothing for creativity? No, nothing for creativity. Well, they have the school, some elementary things, sometimes there is an intensive with a um, drawing artist or thing like that, but it's not a program, it's not a part of the program to develop creativity. Oh, no creativity, strange program. So, and do you have animals, you know? Look for animals, that's good for addicts because they don't know how to be responsible, so with animals they can learn to be responsible. No animals, <laughs> only therapists. <laughs> Sometimes I have to play that part. So, I mean, what do you have then? Meditation, morning half, morning half an hour, or one hour, evening a quarter of an hour, half an hour? That's not all. Groups, yeah, you have groups, okay. But, I mean, what's it that you really have? Well, we have many things, but the main thing that we have is the nothing. The main thing we have is that we don't put up on the stove, another pot, I would say. So the invention of start again is really to work with addictedness. That means you have a, a pot on your stove called addiction, addiction or addictedness, and it's boiling. Right? It's boiling, boiling, boiling. Then you have two principal ways of dealing with it. Either you put a lid on it and you turn down the gas, and you put up another pot, and you put in all the nice ingredients, and you make a nice soup there and all the activity and all the attention goes to the new pot. And this one, we forget about it. And if we do this long enough, perhaps someone will carry it away and we have healed addicts. So at start again, they say, no other pot. Just addictedness. You know? And instead of putting a lid and fire down, take off the lid and fire up. <laughs> and it starts boiling and it starts boiling, you know. And then the therapists, and I think that would be an, um, kind of the concluding remark of Gerhard, you know, the therapists are challenged just as the clients are being challenged in this situation. And one of the elements I could reconstruct, carefully analyzing um, protocols, interviews with a therapist, with clients, I think it's also a partial answer to a question that was raised yesterday twice. Is there a difference between therapists doing Vipassana and not? I think an indication of a difference is that if you really want to work with addictedness, you have to have sort of brave people. <laughs> you, know, you have to have people that do not just run away if it starts to boil, if it starts to evaporate, and if it starts to get quite um, erratic, and uh, people are really riding on their horses of addictedness. And there I see a slight difference between people that have uh, sort of an experiential understanding of what it means if, uh, of what it means if very basic emotions and feelings come up and it's just a question of time till they will go away. It's not a, 
a simplistic sort of optimism that's implied here. We sometimes uh, use the term structural optimism in the sense that I know life is a succession of routine crisis, routine crisis. And I know if I'm at a particular point in my life, I never know what will be in the future for certain. So there's always this openness of the future. Nevertheless, at the very moment at which I am, I'll do the best, whatever it is. Or I'm sincere in the moment. So if you're a therapist and you have 20 people and 10 of them are really at the moment having boiling pots of addictedness coming up and this one is running into um, sexual misconduct there and that one is consuming and that one is um, being involved in some criminal act and you know you think my goodness we really have to bring in some other element to calm them down no no let's just let it come let it come so this sort of optimism knowing that it will change I think is a an absolutely crucial and very important um, element at the level of the staff, at the le level of the um, therapeutic team. And that's where I would locate a sort of a difference between Start Again, which has tried to unite or which has tried to integrate a professional point of view and a Vipassana understanding of addiction and a Vipassana penetration of the principle of addictedness, which I hope I could show you that it nicely fits together with the neurobiological understanding we do have at the moment, compared to some other uh, programs which also have their effects, where people are trained with work, with animal care, with um, social therapeutic means. Now I have a whole list of phenomena that I have found again and again and again, but I think I can defer that to the question and answer period. And I just would like to sort of close with a transparency that uh, makes a connection between uh, different terms that uh, social scientists from a structural point of view would use and uh, that um, Vipassana uh, practitioners might use. So this is a model of progression which I think has its um, relevance as well um, at the level of uh, clients as well as at the level of uh, therapists, team members at Start Again. I think the continuous focusing of attention, the object being natural breath, because you can't focus attention without having an object. So continuously focusing attention, focusing attention, coming back to focusing attention, object being natural breath, there is a quality emerging. That is, I have translated it into attentiveness. And I want to give you an example that a client was telling me once, which I think is very nice. At the beginning in Start Again, they practice on a pana, half an hour in the, in the morning, quarter of an hour in the evening. So at the beginning, they usually like it. They feel it's something interesting, it's something different, so they go for it. And usually people tell you, yeah, after a while, I think I calmed down. I, I feel like some sort of relaxation, some sort of calming down has uh, taken place. And this is sort of the prerequisite for the next step to happen. That's that they start to realize what's happening around them and what's happening inside. And one put it in a very nice metaphor. He said, well, I suddenly started to realize when I was sitting on this damn cushion 
that there is just like a train station in my head and the thoughts are coming and leaving and coming and leaving. And you know, before I was practicing Anapana, I always thought I have to jump onto every train. I have to jump on this train, jump on that train, jump, 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 jump. And this was so exhausting to me. Now I feel like, okay, from time to time, there's a train and I can let it go without jumping on it. And that makes him more focused in the moment, more available for the moment, because there's not always this activity. And I think the tendency is that there is more attentiveness to everyday life, to, to oneself and so on. That's the positive effect that I could reconstruct, not for everyone, but in the flow of development. Then they come to the center, and as Gerhard said, you know, they start to work with the sensation in this triangular area. And this typically they don't like. Then they come and complain about meditation, and they want to sneak out of meditation. Oh, I don't like meditation. I've done it for half a year. I've done it for four months. I know what it is about. But now I really have more important things to do. I have to organize my relationship with my partner and so on. I can't use all these bad feelings and bad emotions and things. Meditation is bad, you know, that's the pitfall. On the one hand, in the Anapana phase, they sort of build up strength. They feel like we are getting strong, we are able to um, cope with the difficulties of life, and we are getting more attentive, and we are getting more, more focused. So there you have to be careful and watch what are the developments. And on the other side, as soon as they start to work with sensations, they think, Oh, meditation is good if I have pleasant sensation. Meditation is very bad if I have unpleasant. So you have to work on this. Meditation is good if something happens, you know, and if you don't just run away. So even if there are people that <laughs> go and sit a 10-day course and work with body sensation, again, I think the thing that emerges out of this practice is a kind of, in the best sense, is a kind of calmness and structural optimism. Structural optimism, as I explained it before, and I think that's really a basis of increasing autonomy. You know, if you, and, and this is not only for addicts, as I said, I think one can also observe this cycle at a different rate and in the, uh, different intensity at the level of uh, team members that practice. There's a certain degree of calmness, there's a certain degree of structural optimism, and that makes you more effective. So I think the change from natural breath to body sensation to a relative increase of life, practic life practical autonomy um, is really something that slowly, slowly, slowly starts to emerge in a field where you really work with addictedness and don't just <coughs> defer your attention to another place and where you give enough time for the processes to happen. So, of course, being a scientist, I have many numbers and many figures, but perhaps we can defer that to the... Um, question and answer part.